0: Are you ready to challenge the rhetoric? Today is Tuesday, August 9th. My name is Sherry Roberts, and I'm your host on Challenging the Rhetoric. idea why the music stopped, but we're going to go ahead and start the show. Today started off with a bang, a gang bang at that to be precise, at least according to Angie Bundy, wife of Ryan Bundy, one of the leaders of the January armed takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge who is being detained at Malona County's in Burnish Jail and is still awaiting a September 7th trial for here and another trial next year in Nevada. This morning, Nevada Assemblywoman Michelle Fiore and Liberty Speaker Gavin Syme told their viewers of their Facebook live stream that Ryan Bundy had been beaten by deputies or guards at the jail and then whisked away to secretly have a bullet removed from his arm in order to expunge the evidence, and that's a quote, to expunge the evidence against the United States government Although Angie Bundy obviously misspoke when she claimed her husband was gang banged, according to Gavin, Ammon compared his brother's treatment to rape, quoting him as saying, this is really the same as rape. You take somebody, you're penetrating them, you're violating their rights, you're, say, you're saying we're going to do this no matter whether you like it or not. Well, I'd like to point out that I am pretty sure that the nearly 300,000 annual victims of rape and sexual assault in the United States would heartily disagree with that. I'd also like to make note that both Bundys, uh, both the Bundy men, Ammon and Ryan, are in an Oregon jail accused of a conspiracy to impede federal authorities, and although they are in fact innocent until proven guilty, there's been enough evidence of a crime that 10 of the 26 co-defendants have already made plea deals. Rachel Ritzheimer, wife of co-defendant John Ritzheimer, did announce yesterday in a Facebook post that her husband was also taking a deal. The deal on the table is believed to be a 30-month deal. There has not been um, any plea hearings yet uh, for his change of plea for Ritzheimer to reflect this. Uh, If it's going to happen, I'd expect it to happen sometime this week. He'll be changing his plea from not guilty to guilty. Both Ammon and Ryan Bundy have been denied pretrial release. They have not changed any pleas. So far, they and Santilli and a few others are determined to have their trial in front of a jury. In this morning's live stream, lunacy kind of prevailed uh, as both Fiore and Syme fear mongered their audience with a lot of speculation and some outright lies, even going so far as to start of barrage of calls to the jail itself, to OHSU Medical Center in, in Portland, Oregon, and even to Multnomah County Emergency Services, because Gavin Sine claimed this was an emergency and he felt it appropriate to tell people to call there. OHSU's call center was clearly frustrated when I called, I personally called to confirm whether or not Ryan Bundy had in fact been transported there as Fiore and Gavin had claimed was a a possibility. Bundy was not there. In fact, the call center operator at OHSU said both Fiore and Gavin could be facing a lawsuit for putting out their bogus call to action which interrupted OHSU medical center business. According to KPTV, a Fox News affiliate in Portland, Ryan Bundy was being transported to court, not to a hospital for surgery as Fiore and Gavin along with Bundy family members had claimed. When law enforcement entered Ryan's cell, to begin the process of cuffing him for the transport, Ryan had refused to be cuffed. He spun around and he became confrontational to the point that a sergeant and deputy took him down by force and then cuffed him. There were no tasers that were used, there was no pepper spray that was used, and he, and he did in fact receive a medical check before eventually actually being transported to the courthouse and back. Um, as far as that medical check went, they said there was no redness, there was no bruises, there was no bumps, he was good to go, he was a-okay. If that is not true, I'm sure that we'll be seeing some evidence of that here in the very near, near future. As for the alleged bullet that's lodged in, uh, said to be lodged in Ryan Bundy's arm, on the night of his January arrest when the injury had actually occurred, he was treated at a local hospital there and then he was released back into the custody of authorities. Medical professionals had said that Ryan had shrapnel, not a bullet, in his arm. Now, there's been a whole lot of Bundy family members for months and supporters that keep talking about the bullet in his arm. Any As far as any documentation goes, it's not a bullet, it's shrapnel. Shrapnel could be bullet fragments. It could be all sorts of things. We don't know yet, so we'll see. There's still an ongoing investigation into five FBI hostage rescue team members who covered up at least two shots that were discharged. Um, and at least one HRT by at least one HRT member on the night that Rancher Lavoy Finicum was killed. The FBI's bullets are not the bullets that hit or um, or killed Lavoy. The the two bullets, one of which just kind of went nowhere, and the other of which was said to go into the roof of of Lavoy's pickup truck, and that is when the injury happened to uh, Ryan Bundy's arm, and it was said to be a minor. Injury. So let's be clear about that. From the very beginning it said uh, a minor injury. Um, so I suppose for, for a lot of people it really seems it's just a little bit too logical and, to, and, and very much outside of this self-induced paranoia that's going on to recognize that the removal, testing, and documentation of whatever it is that is in Ryan Bundy's arm could work to their advantage and against that of the FBI. But instead, it seems that they want to proffer up a bunch of half-truths, untruths, and um, just full-on paranoia offerings to those that are paying attention. Whatever bullet or bullet fragment may be in Bundy's arm, it is in fact the property of the FBI, regardless of what body they physically inhabit. If it is from their bullet anyway, the shrapnel, it may also instead be from the metal of the vehicle's roof, like I said, and not from a bullet at all. Fiori, uh, she's a regular staple of Challenging the Rhetoric's Liar of the Week segment. She seems to have a long leash with the federal government and continues to incite supporters of the Buddy cause for some really weird agenda all her own, and thus far, not really for the benefit of a single patriot who is charged in Oregon or Nevada. We have a lot to talk about tonight, but before we get cracking and I bring on tonight's returning guest, former Finnegan attorney and longtime Bundy family acquaintance, Tavid Farland. Let me give you the details you need to know to participate with us during the live show. During each live broadcast, you can interact on the Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash challengingtherhetoric.news. I'm on Twitter at CTR Newsfeed. Tonight we're using the hashtag CTR Oregon Standoff Bundy Ranch. Um, all of the stories that I cover, they are available on the CTR website. You can go to challengingtherhetoric and find the articles there. I put a new one up today based on the Fiore and Gavin video. You can chat with us in the live listener chat room during the show at Blog Talk Radio dot com forward slash challenging the rhetoric with sherry roberts my name is spelled c-h-e-r-i click on show number 39 the chat room should be right underneath that slider you're already on the page and you don't see the chat room just hit refresh and scroll on down uh, if you have problems with the chat room throughout the evening just hit refresh and it should uh, correct itself for you remember this really is a dialogue it's not a debate there's not going to be any personal attacks over aggression trolling any of that kind of stuff tolerated in the chat room don't forget if you're listening to an archive there is absolutely no live chat <laughs> go figure so here we go let's get mcfarland in here and um Get the show on the road. I think that sounds like a pretty good idea. Todd McFarland, welcome back to Challenging the Rhetoric.
1: Thanks for having me, Sherry.
0: Well, I appreciate having you. Um, I've I've enjoyed our banter and our and our conversations uh, on air, off air, on social media. You're a very smart guy. You're um, you're a really nice guy. You're very well spoken. You address things, uh, in my experience, in a very calm and uh, logical manner. So it's nice to be able to have a conversation with someone that for many is deemed to be from the quote unquote other side, all those labels again, like we talked about last time you were on. But you know, obviously, I, I, I started the show talking about this whole Gavin Syme and Michelle Fiore thing. Did you have a chance to hear any of that or read any of the articles that were out of, on that today and what happened with Ryan?
1: Uh, I didn't have a chance to listen to any of that. Uh, to be honest, it's a little bit too much drama for my taste as a general rule. I did uh, when you brought it to my attention, and, and that's the first I'd heard anything about any of that. got plenty of other things that I have been spending my time doing, including today. But I did try to kind of bring my speed up to a little self up the speed a little bit on some of those articles and the basic, representations and and I I don't know how to characterize any of that other than I'm going to say speculation it looks like there's all kinds of speculation going on all the way around that's the way it looks to me
0: I I believe there is tons and tons of speculation going on but I think getting to um, being able to get beyond just speculation as part of tonight's conversation on several different aspects of um, you know, the whole issue that we're dealing with is Oregon standoff, but with regards to what had happened today with Ryan Bundy, whatever the truth is to what happened, I, I think as an attorney you, you are a good person to ask, if if Ryan Bundy does not want to have whatever it is removed in his arm, is there any legal reasons that he can be forced to do so?
1: so? That's a good question, Sherry, and I, I was curious both uh, from reading, you know, the the show log and and then what you said in your introduction. The the kind of the concept that this this whatever it is, this fragment, this bullet, this shrapnel belongs to the FBI. I, I I'm scratching my head about that one. Uh, so this is what I'm going to say. And again, when we talk about the Constitution. And I realize that you can hardly even mention that word in some circles without being labeled and castigated and all of those sorts of things. But but we do still believe that the, the U.S. Constitution is the thing that guides these sorts of discussions, and it is the thing that provides... Uh, The basic ground rules for dealing with these sorts of situations. So what we've got here is What would be viewed in constitutional terms as a seizure? Okay, so a lot of times when we talk about arrests or something like that, they are seizures We talk about seizures of property, but in a case like this it is the seizure of a person. Okay, so in this case for whatever reason when uh, the guards law enforcement exactly what their titles is I don't know but when they came to Ryan's cell and took him they were actually seizing his person they were seizing his person and taking him somewhere else now there can be all kinds of justification for seizing a a person uh, or for seizing evidence or whatever the case may be and it may be completely constitutional to do that but the Constitution does say there are certain requirements in order to do that sort of thing. And then to do something so invasive as extract something from someone's body, that is definitely a seizure. That's that's a situation that is covered by the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution that says there shall be, and I don't have the exact words, but the basic concept of is there shall be no seizure of that nature without a few things, uh, including probable cause. There's got to be a good reason to do it. And in most cases, in a situation like this, uh, from my perspective, there needs to be some kind of warrant. In other words, so I'm going to say this. If there is not a court order, which indicates that there's some kind of due process, and if they're just coming to seize his person, and take something out of his body. And I'm not saying that's what happened. I think that's a lot of speculation, but if there is any truth to any of that, uh, then from my perspective, that's something that has to be ordered by a judge. I I don't see any way under those circumstances, and I don't know the whole story, but I don't see any way that that law enforcement can simply come and seize Ryan Bundy's person in jail and take him hypothetically to a medical center and seize the evidence conduct a search that that it's that's definitely a search if they go into his body and try to pull something out that's a search so you got a search and a seizure going on here fully covered by the 4th amendment and from my perspective uh, what the Constitution requires is probable cause. It requires a warrant. It requires due process. And so, uh, you know, I don't know what the whole story is. I don't know if all of those things have happened or not. But let's assume hypothetically that all of those things did happen, that due process occurred, and that some kind of warrant was signed some kind of order was signed by a judge saying, hey, I've reviewed the facts, I've reviewed the representation, and I'm putting my stamp of approval on that, then under those circumstances, uh, again, we live in a nation of laws. We don't always agree with the laws, but when a federal court judge signs an order like that, uh, then that's that's what we all deal with, whether we agree with it or not. Whether that happened here or not, I have no idea. Uh, I don't know if If these guards, these officers showed up and said, hey, we're just doing X, Y, Z, or if they said, uh, Ryan, here's here's an order that we've got uh, signed by a federal court judge. He says we're entitled to do these things, and that's what we're going to do. And so, like I said, back to the first word I used, which was speculation. I think there's a lot of speculation about all of this.
0: Uh, certainly, and and to be to be fair uh, to everybody is that all of the speculation with regards to it being a bullet and all of and the surgery and that that's what all these things are about has all come from the um, Michelle Fiore, Gavin Syme, and the Bundy camp. Um, things being reported on are being reported on uh, news from the jail news from the, you know, the medical facility that he was allegedly potentially at, as well as, you know, these these people put out this video and this is what they've said. So all of that with regards to this bullet and, and this medical care is coming from there, but you you touched on three important things that I want to draw out first and foremost and let's, let's kind of keep these somewhat quick as we move through these three things. Um, one of the things is about when you are incarcerated. Where in the Constitution and what exactly does it say with regards to you being transported anywhere, transported to court, which is what the jail is saying happen today? Why why would that be unconstitutional for them to come and say you're well, going I, to
1: court? I, I'm, I'm not saying it is uh, to, to be transported as part of a process, but, again, uh, there is always and needs to be some form of due process. So there is something somewhere in all of those cases and situations. There are orders that authorize all of those things to happen. There are underlying orders. I mean, if, if someone is sitting in jail and there is no order, there's nothing going on. But again, in this case, what we're talking about, and I want to stick to The hypothetical, I'm going to call it that, that you're presenting, which is that he was taken, he was seized, and his person was seized and taken somewhere against his will, uh, because it appears that it was against his will, and a search was undertaken of his body to seize evidence That's a different situation. That
0: is not my question, Todd. No pause. That's the other part of my question. That is not my question right now. My question right now is take all of the the, his arm, medical, all of that off the table. At what point are you saying that for them to come to take him, to transport him to court, whether he knew in advance or not, what is wrong with that? He is incarcerated. I'm not saying
1: any I'm not saying anything is wrong with that. In fact, As I read the articles, and I find this interesting, so you've got one side, if you will. Again, there are different sides. One side saying none of what they were saying happened actually happened. He was just being transported to court. And if that's the case, then I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, uh, if he was being transported to court. But one of the things that I saw said that, There was no reflection in any court records or documents or anything that anyone could find of any hearing today or any reason why he would be being transported to court. Again, we're back to speculation. So we're dealing with a couple of different scenarios here, and if we're talking about a scenario of just being transported to court, that's a different scenario, and I'm not saying anything's wrong with that.
0: The jail. That yes, is what that's the what jail happened. Told, that is what the jail told Maxine Bernstein from the Oregonian that he was that he that they came to get him to transport him to go to court. Um, anyways, so let's Thanks. move to the second part of that, and that, that's about if it was in fact for any kind of medical procedure. I completely agree with you, Um, whether it's it's constitutional or not, I completely agree with you. I think when it comes to somebody coming and seizing a part of your body, regardless of the reason, that there needs to be due process. There needs to be a, a series of events and maybe that is what court was about today. Maybe that is why he was taken to court last week unexpectedly and this has all been the due process. We don't know that because we're not getting that information out of the Bundy end of this. Um, so I, I do agree with you okay, on Okay, so let's... Said, though, with regards to, hold on. With regards to, you know, I, I would not be okay with anybody. I don't care who they are or why they're in jail. I, I don't agree with them coming and, and you know, and, and trying to do a medical procedure against somebody's will. I think that that is wrong. But here's the bigger question in that. This family, and this is documented by them in all of their own social media posts for months and months on end, they are the ones that have perpetuated the the, the idea that there is a bullet, not just shrapnel, in his arm. They are the ones that have complained like there's been some, some kind of misdeed done by the government that the government hasn't taken care of it. All right? So now when you have Gavin Simon and Michelle Fiore go out and say they have breaking news, and inciting people and saying a bunch of speculation as they did, I don't see anybody asking the question, why would these people and this family and Ryan Bundy himself not want not want to have it removed to help prove something with regards to the FBI HRT case, that investigation. That's evidence.
1: So is that a question, Sherry?
0: Yeah. Why, why, what What could be any kind of a logical reason that it would be all this weird smoke and mirror stuff versus, yeah, come and take it out. Let's get this, let's get the show on the road and prove that, you know, or help, you know, this investigation into the FBI HRT members.
1: Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to even speculate about that. Everything that I've heard, sounds like a lot of speculation on both sides and you know me number one i don't want to diss on everybody in the room and i don't want to speculate about stuff that i i i just i don't even pretend to know all of the facts involved here or the rhetoric on the other side uh that sort of thing i don't know what the motives are um so i'm not going to speculate about that sherry it's
0: well, just to, just there's to too clear, many unknown facts. Okay, just to be clear, I wasn't dissing on anybody. I think it's a very relevant and a very valid question. When when there's documented proof from all of them that they have been thinking, basically accusing the government of doing something wrong for not taking care of whatever's in his arm, that's one thing. The other part of that is would that whatever is in his arm that came from the night that lavoy was killed okay the shooting and the arrest is that whatever in there not evidence you're an attorney
1: there's no I mean, question so, i mean is it not if, well, if it's not sure. evidence and
0: i'm going to hear it yeah. from
1: you no it sounds like it would be evidence now evidence in what case uh it for my person because there are multiple cases Or hypothetical or potential cases that we're talking about here one is potential case involving what happened with Lavoie one could involve uh, what happened with Ryan I mean if he received a bullet or shrapnel in his arm he may have a good valid claim against someone Uh, and that would be evidence in both of those hypothetical cases the case involving Lavoie Finnecom. And right now, as far as I understand, uh, the investigation was conducted. We basically know what the outcome of that is. There's still, hypothetically, an investigation going on with respect to the HRT team. I don't know where that stands at this point in time. As far as I know, that's not yet a case per se. As far as I understand, there's not yet a case involving the wrongful death, if that's the way it's characterized of Lavoie Finnicum. As far as I understand, there's not yet any case on behalf of Ryan Bundy. So the case that we're really talking about is the criminal case against Ryan Bundy and the other co-defendants in that case. And as far as I can, can tell, that bullet shrapnel, whatever it is in his arm, is probably not, evidence in that case because that case does not involve that case involves the facts that happened at the refuge Uh, and you know when all of that other stuff occurred that was not at the refuge as far as I can tell nothing happened in that sequence of events that really comes back and 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 has that much bearing on the the basics substantive facts that i think the government is relying upon for the criminal charges in that case
0: i yeah and i think that that is a couple different things it is an ongoing investigation into the five hrt members that is still ongoing that is not case closed there's no no resolution to that it's an active ongoing investigation ryan bundy having been in the back of car for it being one of the HRT bullets allegedly from that went through the ceiling of the roof, then whatever is in his arm, whether he's complained or not, whether his family has complained or not, would in fact be some sort of evidence in the case. And my point is, is it could be evidence that is in their favor, and these are people that are still saying that, that Lavoy Finnegan was murdered in cold blood. There's are still, um, you know, I mean, all that's ongoing on. That inciting is continuing over those particular issues. So it's baffling to me and to many, many people out there why they would not want that removed and analyzed to help be a part of their case. The only thing that I can see is maybe that Ryan Bundy knows there's not a bullet in its shrapnel, like the first medical office of the night of his arrest said, and is going to lose face or something because he simply doesn't want everybody to know it's not a bullet. But that would be silly, too. It makes no sense to me. The logical thing for anybody's case would be take it out and let's analyze it as part of evidence. So I'm going to jump over to Liar of the Week. If you can hang tight with me real quick, Todd, and then we're going to jump into some land things. We're going to jump into your new article on Boiling Frog Post on Sibyl Edmunds uh, uh, Newsbud Service, and, uh, and we're going to get rolling on that, so give me a second here. Life, Technically, the only time that I diss anybody on my show is when I do a Liar of the Week segment, and it's usually something that's documented and true, and I do call someone out for being very dishonest. This week's Liar of the Week is Liberty Speaker Gavin Syme. Gavin travels the country on donations, preaching his version of the meaning of the Constitution. He creates live stream after live stream and video after video telling people that they do not have to follow the laws of this country. Those that are donating to him are paying for their own ticket to jail. Not only same as when they're paying stuff with Chris Adam Hall, not only does he lie for a dime, he incites misplaced fear, instigating dangerous situations for many, including law enforcement. Especially in the state of Oregon right now when everything is still hot and there are still very active threats against law enforcement, judges, attorneys journalists, and even individuals that disagree. So shame on you, Gavin Syme. You, uh, you lied to incite, and you fail your public miserably. Um, it's, there's no surprise that you didn't win when you ran for office while well, you lining your pockets with all these people's distress, okay, the distress that you're lining them with. You, sir, are challenging the rhetoric's Liar of the Week. Okay, Todd, you wrote uh, wrote a pretty great article, um, and it is up on Boiling Frogs Post. You can go to boilingfrogspost.com, probably do a search of Todd's name and find it. It's also uh, being uh, posted on the Challenging the Rhetoric Facebook page. You can look up challengingrhetoric.news, facebook.com, challengingrhetoric.news, and you can get to the Facebook page. Um, Todd, let's talk a little bit about your article. What prompted you to read it? Your article's title is Legal Reality Check, A Case in Point Regarding Judicial Transparency, Among Other Things.
1: Well, so I had written a a previous article for Boiling Frog's post about just judicial transparency in general. So really to put the second article in context, you kind of need to read the first article. Uh, And it just talks about how the judicial system in general, the legal system, uh, I think most people view it to be kind of really mysterious and shrouded in secrecy. And most people just don't understand it. And there are a variety of reasons for that, uh, including the fact – I mean, and I read stuff that Maxine Bernstein uh, writes all the time for the Oregonian coming out of court, and there's hardly ever any images or anything like that – in this day and age, in the media, we rely heavily on images. But one of the reasons there isn't is because in a lot of courts you can't even take any kind of picture or anything like that. There are just all kinds of things about our judicial system that cause most people to not have a clear understanding of how to operate. And one of the things I maintain is that there is a transparency issue there. And so after I'd written that article, and then I saw the piece that came out by... Uh, Oregon Public Broadcasting about the situation involving the so-called special privileges that the Bundy defendants received to have unmonitored communications with their attorneys and how that all came about, I thought to myself, you know, that's, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about here with respect to transparency because among other things, supposedly it was an arrangement that was made months ago, nobody knew anything about it And then there's all this conjecture and, again, speculation about how it happened, what it means. And I think it leaves a lot of people, including me, scratching my head. Uh, And, again, causes people to use labels and say, well, for whatever reason, these defendants are now receiving special privileges. As I really tried to drill down and understand what was going on, I don't agree with that characterization at all. They might be receiving some kind of special accommodations because the case is a unique case. And and I think we recognize that. But the arrangements that were made were to allow them to have unmonitored communications with their defense attorneys. And I think that's what the United States Constitution requires. And so I think what the judge was basically doing is figuring out a way, under the unique circumstances of this case, to allow this situation to comply with what the Constitution requires. That's, that's, that's my interpretation of what was going on, but I think it's been cast very differently by a lot of people who've tried, to, and again, I'm gonna just go ahead and say it, uh, there are people out there that are looking for every opportunity to bash the Bundys. Uh, and this is a way to do it. Let's characterize this as special privileges that they're receiving. So let's, let's see if we can not bash that some more. And, and from my perspective, that's, that's a distorted interpretation. I don't think it's a fair interpretation. But I think it is a good example of this transparency issue that I'm talking about.
0: You know, I, first and foremost, let me make sure the listeners know, and you know if you don't, I agree with you that we have a serious problem with transparency, not just with regards to the d- judicial system, but with the government and many other things. But I think that that goes all ways as well. I think that when you have organizations or, you know, corporations, all of those things, I think there needs to be a certain sense of transparency that, that comes along with it. But you said a lot of things, so I, I want to say something. You You were talking about... Um, transparency, you know, right right from the get go, with regards to your article. And at the same time, Emily in the chat room had posed a really good question, which kind of falls back on what we were talking about with the HRT, the FBI HRT, the hostage rescue, rescue team. And she says another lawyer had said that what happened at the Seneca killing is relevant because it speaks of reliability of FBI. I would like to add that integrity to that also, and transparency, to use that buzzword tonight. Um, of the FBI and then it can tarnish their investigation, not only the investigation, you know, the, like in the government's favor, but the investigation against the, F, the FBI the HRT member that did in fact cover up the fact that they shot these these um, these shots. So um, it does make a difference and Emily would be curious on your thought because you're talking about transparency and it's kind of the same thing. Why? Why would let's take the bunnies off the table. Why would anybody, okay? Why would anybody that that is involved in a similar kind of situation without that kind of an ongoing situation not want to push that? Because it is a Why would operating. they not
1: want to it's unclear why would they not want to push what?
0: Why would they not want to push or any evidence handling with regards to an investigation into the FBI. We're talking about transparency. So, That's part
1: of transparency. All right, so, all right, so you're relating that back to the shrapnel bullet issue but, well, and based on anybody. how that ties it doesn't have into to be, it. Doesn't, no,
0: Todd, it doesn't have to be the Bundy's. It could be anybody,
1: okay?
0: okay? Right. It, it could right. be anybody, okay. any so case. Th- it's all about transparency. All right,
1: so, okay, so this is what I'm going to say about that. Um, I I agree, transparency, but I think the thing we need to understand is this. We expect transparency out of our government at every level, and I believe it is an issue at every level. Believe you me. I mean, you're not going to hear me say that any of these issues are just, you know, symptoms of problems at the federal government level. Uh, It happens at the state government level. It happens at the local government level. It's an issue that I've been heavily involved in on a number of different fronts. Transparency, I believe, is a huge issue. Now, but what you're talking about is then private transparency. And and I don't believe, for the most part, that that's – I mean, I think that's an apples and oranges comparison because as private citizens, we're entitled entitled to privacy, we don't ha- we're right, not so required to be transparent
0: i agree with you i agree with you but when we're demanding transparency would we not have some sort of onus to play our part to do our part to do it right to make sure of that transparency i
1: i don't disagree with that i mean so you're saying we're not applying that to the bundies we're applying it to whatever hypothetical situation and so again it's a little bit difficult to address that because that's kind of a broad brushstroke uh, scenario, saying if it somehow applies to us, don't we have an onus to engage in some kind of transparency action? And I guess that's just too vague and ambiguous for me to really be able to say yes or no or, or explain exactly. How it, I mean, if we had a concrete hypothetical example, let's, let's look at that.
0: Okay. Well, we're we're going to move on to the next thing, but I am going to have a final thought on that real quick. I, I would say that if you're involved in the very case, then you do have an onus to to do what it takes to get that transparency of which you demand, um, and that's one Okay. So I want to address that, there, Sherry. Cases.
1: Since you've said that, I, I want to address that again. Back to the Constitution. Under the Constitution, if if you're the person, if you're the defendant, you have a constitutional right to remain silent so we may think and we may say in our opinion they have an onus to do xyz but what the constitution says is no you don't have an onus you don't have a requirement to do that you're entitled to remain silent uh, because you have the right of privacy and you're not government government's required to be transparent as a private citizen you're not and in fact you have constitutional right to remain silent I mean that's the way it works
0: I understand that. However, if you're the very one that's, thats and I don't mean you personally, I'm using you as a general term, if you're the very one that's yelling and crying about transparency on something and it's a case that you yourself are involved in and you can help provide the very thing to make things transparent, I think that there's a problem there. I want to talk about those special privileges in your article. I, I liked your article a lot, Todd. Um, I, I read it several times. But I keep getting stuck, uh, you know, somewhere there in the beginning when, when we're talking about the term special privileges and a term that you use, which you're talking about reasonable and special accommodations. And I think that the misnomer here is that the people that are having any kind of problem, regardless of the titling or the word choice that OPV used, I think it's not privileges and it's not accommodations. It's the word special. And so if somebody's be and you use the word special yourself in your article. So what is the... I mean, can you understand from a spectator perspective from somebody that's interested in the cases for whatever their reasons are when somebody's getting any kind of special anything that that's going to raise a red flag of question to them so when so if you could just explain a little bit better um, without it being a special thing why is so, from the Constitution why are these when they were not allowed to talk and cohort, before up until now, why are they being allowed now with not using special, not that they're special or better than any other people awaiting trial that are maybe not getting those privileges or those accommodations? Why this this case?
1: Well, and That's, I think, I think that... That's a
0: question that people have.
1: Sure. And, and it's a good question. And what it boils down to, a lot of times there can be procedures and protocols in jails and correctional Institutions and they, they may have practices that don't comply and that they've been you know following those practices for years and they've just never been called on it. So someone says, and this case is a, a different in a couple of senses. So most of the people in those jails are being housed for state uh, you know criminal charges. They're not federal uh defendants okay and so they're there for different reasons and honest to goodness and i put this in my article they are considered basically uh, enemies of the state uh they're treated as political prisoners so they are different than a lot of people i mean most of the people that are in our jail system are there for drug offenses the vast majority of cases that occur in state and federal court are drug offenses. It's a different ball game all the way around. So this situation is unique. I mean, I think everybody has to recognize it's unique. It involves multiple defendants. It involves federal defendants housed in a state's a county court facility, not court facility, a county jail facility. And so they may not have the accommodations just that they use on a regular basis to allow these defendants the opportunity to have unmonitored communications with their defense attorneys, which they're entitled to. I'm not going to say entitled, they have a right to that. They have a constitutional right I, I think, as part that, of their I right to I legal think counsel. I think that we
0: all get the same rights, correct? I think we all get Absolutely. the same rights, correct?
1: All get the same rights. And so it's not special in that sense. But just because they requested to be able to have that, then people are trying to say, well, this is different. This is special. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I, I, think this is, I think, if anything, and I suggested this, it's what the Constitution actually requires if you're a person who says, I want to be afforded my constitutional rights. That, enti- that entitles me to unmonitored communications with my attorney.
0: Okay, so Todd, i want to I want to start jumping into land rights. And before we jump into land rights with regards to like Bundy issues and stuff surrounding specific to that, um, you know, Chris uh you've had some interactions with him on online, but just to, just to be clear, he is not the only one who keeps bringing this up to me. And I apologize because I'm not up on exactly what this is. If you could just take, we have about maybe 15 minutes left together. If you could just take a few minutes, please, and explain whatever critical mass of storm is. So,
1: uh,
0: I have no idea. I'm going to say is. first of all.
1: All right. So. And, and again, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of speculating about things either. So I'm I may not be completely sure with respect to the whole land rights issue. And and what I'm going to say there is Sherry, it would it, that would probably be a good thing to spend an entire segment on. I think it's tough to cover that landscape in in 15 minutes. Uh, uh, from my perspective, that issue, critical mass, all that business. Uh, Those are buzzwords that I'm familiar with based on, I've used them myself, but especially with respect to my communications and what I've seen Chris Zinda say about this because that kind of seems to be a pet issue with him, and I'm not dissing him for that. We're all entitled to our opinions about things. Uh, but, but I, I think really it? to do what that is it issue
0: specifically, he's talking about Chaz, so that the listener and I know what this is.
1: please? So what he's talking about is while the organs, while the or the Malheur occupation was going on, that's that's what I'm gonna, that's how I'm gonna characterize that. Um, okay. There was a series of workshops elsewhere. Um, for ranchers for not just for ranchers but for uh resource users i'm going to say productive resource users so on these federal lands there are a variety of resources out there that are utilized by again we're all members of the public so whether it's a rancher a miner a logger what a recreationist a hunter fisherman whatever the case may be there's these resources that we all use. And so these workshops invited uh, people who were part of uh, a class, if you want to call it that, or category that would be characterized as productive resource users. So that could include, in most cases, ranchers, loggers, miners, that sort of thing. And basically talked about and tried to provide an opportunity for them to Learn about uh, the basis for, uh, again, however you want to characterize that. When it comes to ranching, a lot of times, uh, and I've, I've heard it referred to with these terminology for 20 years, grazing rights, range rights. So the concept is, what does that mean? I mean, you've got a debate between, again, it's a war of words, between the idea of a grazing privilege, or grazing rights. And so those workshops involved education about those sorts of things. It involved education about a series of congressional acts that talk about those things. A whole series of homesteading acts and it talks about and and it, just you know to kind of introduce the topic I suppose um One of the things that people need to understand is that there are some basic fundamental principles that govern the way the West was settled. And one of the best ways to hopefully hopefully understand that is Western Water Law, which is based on prior appropriation and beneficial use. And that's basically the fundamental premises that underlie the Homesteading Acts as well. So what that means is, that in order to acquire a right right to say use water or land, you had to be the first to claim it and you had to be the first to put it to beneficial use. And then there's this concept of use it or lose it. You have to continue to use it. And those were the basic concepts and premises behind all the homesteading acts, behind all Western water law, if you understand, say, how homesteading worked, what you did is you staked the claim to a piece of property that was then considered part of the federal domain, but it was open to entry and settlement, and there were no other prior claims. No one else was claiming the right to use that property. So you found that spot wherever it was. and you said, "Here's the corners, and I'm claiming this particular spot. Now, Depending on where it is in the country, it's different sizes. The farther west you get, past the 100th meridian, out here where it's really dry, the sizes got bigger because it required more land to be able to sustain and support a family in that era, the homesteading era. You couldn't support a family with 40 acres or 160 acres. You had to have 320 or 640 or more than that. And much of that ground, much of that land was not suitable for farming and there was not enough natural precipitation that it could be farmed in any, what should I say, um, effective way. And there wasn't a way to irrigate most of it. So the only thing a lot of that land was really suitable for in terms of production agriculture was grazing. And so there were stock grazing or stock raising homesteads that didn't require that you actually cultivate the land, but required that you put it to beneficial use for grazing purposes, and that created grazing allotments. And you had your cattle, you had your sheep, you had your horses, you had these various classes of livestock that grazed, and created these grazing allotments that were recognized, and that created this idea. And again, back to the basic concept, prior appropriation, you went there, you stake the claim, you put it to beneficial use, and you continued to use that and in the process, you acquired and I know this is this is unpopular the idea that you acquired a right versus a privilege, but that's that's really uh, the basic concept behind it and so it was interesting to me I read an article it's been a few months ago uh, talking about these cases and it was suggested that this whole notion was something that was going to be brought up in these cases, that that was going to be part of the defense that was going to be presented. And so whoever it was that was writing the article uh, talked to some law professor there in Oregon and asked about that person's opinion about these concepts and he said, well, it's a wildly unpopular uh, concept basically. And i kind of had to laugh about that and i think he's right we live in a nation of 315 million people at this point the vast majority of whom don't live in the rural west the vast majority of whom live east of the mississippi hypothetically or at least in urban areas and this idea that ranchers uh, might acquire some kind of right in the forage the right to graze that it's actually a right as opposed to a privilege is very unpopular I think it's unpopular in exactly the same way that when. Thomas Jefferson did the Louisiana purchase and the United States acquired basically the most of 10 Western states through the. Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that then they had to look at that and say "Okay, now we've got all this land out there but guess what. There are people in the way you've got all these Native Americans they're inhabiting this land, they're using it, and for us to go in there and to be able to acquire the use of that land, we've got to do something with them. We've got to remove them. And so the whole idea that the Native Americans had rights to that land was, again, at that time, wildly unpopular. And I think it's that same parallel – that we're dealing with today in terms of the popularity of this concept. And we know what happened to them. Sherry, you started well, to say me, something.
0: Me, yeah, I was going to say, because it's, it's, it's in direct line of what you're saying. So so let me, I want to address two things. First and foremost, what you said earlier in, in this in this trail of your conversation, and that was that, um, you would like to be able to spend a whole hour discussing this stuff. Let me explain something about radio. It, we want we want listeners to want to hear more. We don't want them to zone out and tune out. When you're doing podcasts, when you're doing radio, and I come from 20 years plus of corporate radio, all right, corporate media, you need to give people things in bite-sized pieces, especially now with this, this crazy habit now society. Um, If we had an hour thing just on one finite topic, you know, and zeroed in like that, people would just hit pause, walk away, do their thing, come listen a little more because it's about bite-sized pieces. But I want to talk about that rights and privileges thing, we have just a couple more minutes left on that. And, And here's the deal, rights and privileges. We have an international right, a legal international right to an education, but those who do not live near a school do not have a right to ride a school bus. It is a privilege. So they have a right to that education if they themselves can find a way to make it there. And I don't see that all too different with some of the rancher uh, and farmer issues. In the case of ranches that do not have, cannot afford enough land, I'm not talking about land that that somebody may have taken away, all right. I'm talking about ranches because that's the other side of the problem, that don't have enough. Money to afford more land for their grazing, and when it's—is it grazing rights or is it grazing privileges? I personally don't see it any different than a child that needs to go to school and the family doesn't have a car or their car is broken down or their 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 own personal economy is so bad and they gotta revert resort to homeschooling not by choice but by necessity. Rights and privileges mean a lot of different things in this country, and we can't cherry pick what they mean. Um, I want to give you—you you got two minutes left. I want you to talk a little bit more about the land rights issues and Todd, I definitely want to have you back because I think these are important issues and I do think that having these sorts of conversations is very beneficial and a positive thing it's always a positive step forward
1: well, thanks sherry uh, so i'm going to say fair enough to your uh, comment about the bite sized pieces, and that if you you know try to eat the whole elephant all at once that that loses people and so in terms of how to wrap up the whole land rights uh, discussion, uh, I think it's tough to wrap up, but again, in this amount of time. But the basic concept is this: that ranchers, and I think it it kind of underlies the argument that the Bundys have been making, is that much like the Native Americans, their forefathers, and again, their forefathers may have displaced Native Americans, and I'm not condoning or justifying that. If you heard me last week, uh, you know I've got a soft spot in my heart for the Native Americans. I think they've been sorely abused in this country, but I think there are many parallels between what is going on with ranchers in the West today and what happened with the Native Americans or 150, 100 years ago. I mean, it started 200 years ago and it continues to this day but I think there are a lot of parallels there in terms of if you understand those basic concepts with respect to um, somebody just passed me a note, so that distracted my thought process, but if you (laughs) understand the basic concepts of
0: prior appropriation,
1: (laughs) yeah, exactly. So you're better at it than I am. Prior appropriation and beneficial use, that's how I'm gonna wrap that up is that those are basic concepts that form the foundation for how the West was settled. That is what Western water law is based on. That is what land use law is based on. And that formed the basis, corrupt till 1976 of federal law. Then in 1976, you had a whole bunch of new federal land use statutes passed and that's what we've been operating under since then. That's true. But they all said these acts are subject to all prior, all valid prior existing rights. And what has not been fully explored and what we don't have a firm grasp on at this point is what were those valid prior existing rights? And I mentioned something in that article, coming back to that, RS 2477, because that's an example. That's an example of rights of access on federal lands that were acquired by prior appropriation and beneficial use so if for a period of time you used a road or a trail or a two-track out on the federal land for x amount of time you acquired a right to that by prior appropriation and beneficial use and so i think there are good examples that we should all be able to recognize of how that works. So I probably exceeded my two minutes.
0: You, no, you're good. You're good. Um, Todd, you know I appreciate you. I really do. I, I enjoy, like I said, I enjoy the lively banter between us, whether it's on air or not. You, you're, you're you're a good person to talk to. You do have some, some great insights that, that I do believe that people need to hear. It doesn't mean they need to agree with you, just like you don't need to agree with me, or they don't need to agree with me either. It is about hearing one another. Todd, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope I can get you back on again soon. I'm going to go ahead and start wrapping up the show now.
1: You're welcome, Sherry. Thanks for having me.
0: You have a great evening. All right. Our words, they have power and they have impact on someone. We saw that today in a really big way with Fiori and Gavin Sine's outrageous video claims. Where are the corrections? Where are the retractions? Where exactly is the truth? Is it to the left? Is it to the right? Is it in the middle? Or is it somewhere else altogether? We have to find it, and we can't find it when we're only seeking to confirm biases. If we're only seeking to confirm biases, then we are not, not a single one of us, seeking any kind of real truth. Propaganda, it goes both ways. I tell you that week after week after week, and I still watch people participate in propaganda on a daily basis. Sharing is not always caring. It's up to each of us to take responsibility for the propaganda that we participate in, whether we're creating it or curating it. And if you don't know what I mean by curating it, that means that Almighty Like button or the share button without knowing what it is you're sharing and you're you're doing it based on a headline or who posted it. Just because I tweet out something or post something, I, it would be ridiculous for me to not not only think but want somebody to share it just based on the fact that I put it out there. We need to take our time with these things. We share so much constantly in social media. That there's no way that the average person, with a lot, with the amount of stuff that they often share, are actually taking the time to really know what it is that they're doing. You know, caring means a lot of things, including what we put out there for the world, but also what we bring into ourselves and into our lives from the world. So, how much do you really, you can answer? So, if you missed part of tonight's show or any of the other shows, you can find the archives on Blog Talk Radio. Podbean, or at the website at ChallengingTheRhetoric.News. And don't forget to check out The Rise of the Modern Cult while you're there. If you like what I'm doing, please share my work, whether it's the shows or the articles or both. If you really want to show your love for what I do, feel free to tip me. Every gratuity is greatly appreciated. I'll be back live tomorrow night, Wednesday, August 10th at 6 p.m., uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, with special guest, Robert Officer. We're going to be talking sovereign citizens and taxes until tomorrow. Please be kind to one another, whether you like each other or not. Be open to people. Be open to different ideas. Be open to things that challenge your own rhetoric. That's what we've got to do, folks. That's it for me tonight. Thanks for listening. I love you.